All right, so today we are going to be looking at Daniel chapter 9. So if you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, whether it's in book form or phone form or tablet form or whatever, make your way over to Daniel chapter 9. The chapter opens with Daniel discovering from the prophetic writings of the prophet Jeremiah that the number of years that the Jewish people would be exiled from their homeland would be 70 years. Well, realizing that it has been almost 70 years since he and the others have been taken captive from Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, Daniel offers up a deeply heartfelt prayer confessing his and his people's sins and asking the Lord to restore his people to their homeland. Then, in response to his prayer, the angel Gabriel comes and gives Daniel a vision that lays out a timeline for the restoration of Jerusalem, the coming of the Messiah, and the final days of human government. All of that happens in Daniel chapter 9. So let's begin in the first verse. It says, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Before we get into the content of this chapter, let's set it into the chronology of the book of Daniel and Daniel's life. The events of this chapter take place shortly after Daniel chapter 5 and around the same time as the events of Daniel chapter 6. The Medes and the Persians, they have recently conquered the Babylonians, and Darius the Mede is now the ruler over Babylon. Daniel is serving now in a high administrative post in the court of Darius. And sometime during this first year of Darius's reign, the things of Daniel chapter 9 happen. The prophet Jeremiah had written down the prophecies that he had received from the Lord during the closing days of Jerusalem before Babylon destroyed it. And a copy of these prophecies has found their way into the hands of Daniel. Daniel has been reading and studying these writings of Jeremiah, and he discovers that the Lord told Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Jeremiah 25.11, it says, referring to Israel. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord. I will make it desolate forever. Jeremiah chapter 29 contains a letter that the Lord wrote to the Jewish people exiled in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah, and in it, the same prediction about 70 years is also made. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, it says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. 
I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Daniel had been taken captive to Babylon in about 605 B.C. It's now around 539, 538 B.C., which means almost 70 years have passed. You'll have to trust me on the math there, or if you got your calculator out, you can get that out. 605 minus 538, 539. You go, oh, yeah, that's almost 70. See? There you go. And that means that it is the time is very near for this prophecy to be fulfilled that was given in Jeremiah. So in verse 3, Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, we're back there again. It says, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with Him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. So realizing the nearness of the fulfillment of this prophecy it encourages Daniel to begin praying fervently for its fulfillment. Now, why does he do that? I mean, if what has been prophesied is supposedly supposed to take place, why does Daniel pray for its fulfillment? Well, Daniel understands the interrelationship and the interplay between the sovereignty of God and the God-given responsibilities that we have. God indeed has promised to bring his people back to their homeland after seven years of exile, but the Lord also continues to hold his people responsible for how they live their lives, and he's watching to see where their hearts are at. Look at what it says in Jeremiah 29, 10-14 again, especially verses 12-14. through 14. He said, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And then in verse 12, it says, Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. The people praying and seeking the Lord is going to be an integral part of the fulfillment of the prophecy. Daniel's prayer, which occupies verses 4 through 19 of this chapter, is largely a confession of his sin and the sin of the people of Israel. It was their great sins against the Lord for hundreds of years that had led to their exile. He puts on sackcloth and ashes as symbols of humiliation and remorse here. And then something that adds to the power of Daniel's actions is knowing how little this man has sinned personally. I mean, we never read of any moral failure in Daniel's life. He lived a very godly, righteous, holy life. And here we see him pouring out his heart in confession before the Lord. Have you ever noticed how a person's sensitivity about sin in their life goes up the closer they are to the Lord. And just the opposite is also true, that the farther a person is from God, the more insensitive they are about sin in their life. So here, Daniel, someone who uh, is one of the you know, finest people who's ever walked the planet, 
extremely sensitive of sin in his life and the, and the life of his people. He pours his heart out here. Verse 4 says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Now, there are things we can learn from Daniel and his prayer that can help us with our own praying, and we want to uh, make some observations about that as we take a look at this. And the first thing that we observe is Daniel's attitude and his perspective. His attitude and perspective. The, the goodness of God is never in question by Daniel. The Lord has been faithful to keep his covenant of love. The Lord has been good to his people, always. The problem lies with the people of Israel themselves who have sinned and broken their covenant with the Lord again and again. That is what finally led to their exile. And Daniel, he humbly acknowledges that in his prayer here. The unchangeable goodness of God is an important truth for us to always hang on to. The Lord always treats his people in a way that is for their ultimate good. Even in our pain and our suffering, the Lord is using it for our ultimate good. You guys remember that, that passage in Romans 8.28? For we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There are things that happen in our life and in this world that we can see no explanation for and that appears to be very unfair and unjust. How do we respond to those things? We cling to the truth of God's goodness and that he cares more about these things than we do. That his heart is broken more deeply than ours is. And we trust him to settle all the scores in his time and according to his good purposes which are far in excess of our own best intentions. Now some people, they blame God for the troubles in their life. They'll approach God in an accusatory way when they say, why have you done this to me? Why have you let this happen in my life? And they have a very selective memory, forgetting about their choices and actions which led to the consequences of those choices and actions. We need to be honest with the Lord and humbly acknowledge our sin before Him. Some people, they try to bargain with God in their praying. If you'll do this, then I will always do this. I promise to do this if you will do this for me. That's not a good practice. God always keeps his promises, but we can have trouble keeping ours even when we have the best intentions to keep them. God can't be manipulated or pressured into doing things for us anyway, can he? And if we look back over our life, and all of the things that we have prayed for, I think we can all echo the words of the old country song, thank God for unanswered prayers. The Lord always knows better than we do. Let's trust him. Verses 7 through 17 is 
the major content of this prayer. We're not going to read that this morning because of all of the stuff that we have to cover. But these verses contain this heartfelt confession of sin on behalf of the people of Israel. Daniel makes a full acknowledgement of their sin, owning it completely without giving any kind of justification for it. And it is such a rare thing in our world to see a person do that to acknowledge and own their sin with a broken and contrite heart. That's the kind of confession the Lord is looking for from us too, though, isn't it? When, when we try to minimize our sin, make excuses for it, explain it, justify it, we're insulting Him. I mean, He knows everything. He knows all of the little thought games that we play with ourselves to justify what we are doing. He wants us to be honest with Him, to come clean with Him and with ourselves. The Lord wants to extend His mercy to us and to forgive us, but we need to open our hands and hearts to receive it from Him. And the way we do that is by being honest with our confession before Him. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Verse 18 of Daniel 9, we're skipping down to there now. It says, Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city, that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. He says in verse 18, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Amen, amen, amen. We don't look to the Lord to answer our prayers because of our own righteousness. Instead, we look to the Lord to answer our prayers because of His great mercy. If we depended on the Lord to answer our prayers in response to our righteousness, we will be waiting a very long time for our prayers to be answered, if ever. We bring our prayers to the Lord depending on His great righteousness, pleading for His mercy, not trying to justify ourselves because of our righteousness. Why? Because we don't have righteousness that's worth anything. I love the succinct, to-the-point pleas of Daniel in verse 19. He says, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Or in other words, your own reputation and glory bring, for your own reputation and glory, bring people, your people back to Jerusalem. Jesus, he taught in Matthew 6, 7, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. See, we don't need to give the Lord a long explanation of the situation. He knows all of the details better than we do. We just need to ask Him for help. 
Don't ever be reluctant to pray because you don't know what to say. Just say what is on your heart. The Lord knows your heart, and he knows all about the situation already. We don't need to tell the Lord how to fix the problem. He knows better than we do how to fix things. In fact, he may have a very different and a much better way of fixing the problem than we have in mind. I mean, how often do we pray, Lord, I need you to do such and such and such and such to fix this, such and such and such and such. He's going, maybe not. I have a little different approach than that. After Daniel's confession of sin, his prayer is simply, Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. Lord, don't delay. See, prayers are not made more powerful and effective by many words. Prayer offered in simple, trusting faith moves the heart of the Lord. Verse 20 says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift, in swift flight above the, about the time of the evening sacrifice. So Gabriel, this is the same angel that had spoken to Daniel in his vision recorded in Daniel 8. Daniel refers to him as a man here because he looks like a human being in appearance to him, but it's really an angel as we uh, have learned 22, says, he instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. says, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Highly esteemed. As soon as Daniel had started to pray, an answer was being given to his prayer. The Lord wants to bless his children. He has a generous heart toward them. Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 7, you might remember, he said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I love what Gabriel says here. He says, you are highly esteemed. It literally means you are very precious to the Lord. The Lord treasures you. You are loved beyond measure by the Lord. What an incredible thing to have said to you. This is spoken to Daniel in this verse, but it's true also of you. If you're a child of the Lord, you are very precious to the Lord. He treasures you. You are loved beyond measure. You are highly esteemed. And the Lord now gives Daniel a vision and its explanation in answer to his prayer, beginning in verse 24. 
says, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, I want to say at the outset, before we get into these last four verses of the chapter, that there is more than one opinion about what some of these things mean in these verses. And in fact, some Bible scholars have said these are some of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible. Not only that, but that they are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible to interpret the meaning of. So with that in mind, I'm not going to cover various opinions about the meaning of these verses. That's something that you can pursue on your own if you're so inclined. Instead, I'm going to present what I think is a reasonable way of interpreting these verses, but with a big dose of humility, recognizing that there are other reasonable ways to to understand these verses too. So, uh, no, no reason to argue and get upset at each other about these things. But this prophecy, as a whole, is presented here in verse 24, covering all 77s or weeks, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Then verse 25 describes the first 69 sevens or weeks. Verse 26 describes events between the 69th and the 70th seven or week. And then verse 27 describes events of the 70th or that last seven or week. So the first question we want to address is, well, what are the sevens or the weeks talked about here? The Hebrew word, which is translated sevens or weeks, it literally means a period of seven or a group of seven. So when it says 77s or 70 weeks, the literal wording is 70 groups of seven. This word is often translated into English as week because a week is a group of seven days. However, here it's believed by scholars that the reference is not to a group of seven days, but to a group of seven years. So we have 77s, group of seven years, 70 of them. It says, decreed for your people and your holy city. This prophecy is concerning the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem. Within this time period of 70 groups of seven years, there are six things decreed to be accomplished. They are, it says, to finish or to stop transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, or to bring vision and prophecy to a complete fulfillment and closure, and to appoint the most holy, to anoint the most holy place. And it's believed that this is a reference to the establishing of the temple, which will be the Lord himself, as John describes in Revelation chapter 21, Verses 22 through 27. So think about that. The fulfillment of all of the elements of this prophecy are found in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He will finish or stop transgression. 
He will put an end to sin. He will atone for wickedness. He'll bring in everlasting righteousness. He will complete the fulfillment of prophecy. And he'll be the new temple, the everlasting light in the world in the new age that's talked about in Revelation 21. So in verse 25, it says, No one understand this. From the time the world goes From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. All right. We're not going to dig into, like, many complicated details here, but I want to give us uh, kind of an overview of what uh, is believed to be talked about here. This verse is believed to be predicting when the Messiah will come, or in our case, has come. It says, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It's believed that this refers to events recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the decree was given to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Now, there are some varying opinions about this, but one view is that the beginning of the 77s is 458 BC when Artaxerxes makes the decree for the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra, which is talked about in Ezra chapter 7. It says, Until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Well, this is the Messiah the anointed one. Again, there are varying opinions about this, but one view is that the event being referred to here is the baptism of Jesus, since that is when his public ministry as Messiah began in earnest. So the total time between when the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or for a total of 69 sevens. Multiplying 69 times 7 gives a total of 483 years. Well, if the decree to restore Jerusalem to restore if the decree to restore Jerusalem was issued in 458 BC, then 483 years after that would be AD 26 which is around the time that Bible scholars believe Jesus' public ministry began. That's a pretty good prediction of when the Messiah would come, I think. Verse 26. After the 62 sevens, so there was seven sevens and then 62 sevens, so now we're after. At point 69 sevens here, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. It says, after the 62 sevens, or after the appearing of the anointed one, the Messiah says he will be put to death and will have nothing. Well, this is certainly a prediction of the crucifixion of Jesus, isn't it? And when he was crucified, it appeared to the onlookers that he had died in vain. 
having nothing to show for his efforts during his ministry. In reality, as we know, his death was necessary to overcome sin and death for us. Now let's pause here for a moment, because this is when um, a lot of opinions really start to diverge about uh, how to handle the latter part of verse 26 and 27. Again, there are varying opinions about these things, but one common view and understanding of the time between the first 69 sevens and the beginning of the final seven goes like this, that the first appearing of the Messiah occurred at the end of the first 69 sevens, which we have just been talking about. The second appearing of the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus, will occur at the end of the last seven. That hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And the time between the first 69 sevens and the beginning of that last seven is referred to as the time of the Gentiles, an indefinite period of time which we are currently in. Some refer to this time period as the church age. You may have heard those terms before. The timeline in Daniel here is focused on the Jewish people, which we noted when, we, when we're looking at verse 24 above. And during this time of the Gentiles, which we are now in, the timeline in Daniel chapter 9 here has been suspended until the beginning of that final seven when the focus will again be on the Jewish people and their timeline. So verse 26 talks about things between the 69th and the 70th seven. And verse 26, or I mean 27, talks about the events that take place during that last seven or the 70th seven leading up to the second coming of Jesus. So if your head hasn't exploded yet, Let's look at this second half of Daniel 26. It says, The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. This ruler is the same person referred to as the little horn in Daniel 7, and we commonly refer to as the Antichrist. The people of the ruler who will come, well, this is that fourth beast in the vision of Daniel 7, which was identified as the Roman Empire, and then further on in time, it would be splinters and remnants of it. These people, says, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And this happened in AD 70 when the Romans marched into Jerusalem and leveled the temple and destroyed the city. Verse 27 says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So Daniel's timeline for, 
for his people, the Jews, resumes at this point, talking about that final seven-year period, the 70th seven. And he that's being talked about here is still that same ruler that's been talked about in the last part of the previous verse, the one who's commonly referred to as the Antichrist. And it's believed that this ruler, who has also been mentioned in Daniel chapter 2, 7, and 8, will make some kind of a covenant or special agreement with the Jewish people, allowing them to resume their temple worship in Jerusalem. And uh, if you are a Bible prophecy buff, you know that there's all kinds of details and other things that are filled in on that. We're going to keep things very uh, simple here and not get into a lot of uh, speculative details to try to fill in all of that. But then in the middle of this seven-year period, this ruler will break that agreement, stop the temple worship, turn on the Jewish people, persecuting them terribly, and carry out great blasphemies against God. And we talked a little bit about that before when we were looking in chapter 7 and 8. And then it ends with, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. In other words, this ruler will carry out his wickedness until the Lord Jesus Christ comes and destroys him and establishes his kingdom, the end. Phew! Is your brain smoking? It might be. You may have a headache at this point as you have tried to follow all of this stuff that I have drug us through in these last uh, verses of Daniel 9. We moved pretty fast through some of this stuff. And you may now have more questions than you had to, when we started. But if you didn't follow all this, if you feel confused by some of this, if you're not sure about some, don't sweat it. Some of the brightest minds in Christianity throughout history have spent their whole lives wrestling with trying to decode and understand all of this. What we know for sure and what I want you to put your hope in is this. Jesus Christ is coming back one day and our hope is in him. Bible scholar Stephen Miller concludes and summarizes his commentary on this chapter of Daniel with these words, which I think really captures well uh, as a summary and big picture for us to take away. He writes this. He says, regardless of disagreement over dates and some matters of interpretation, certain facts seem clear, referring to these verses that we've been looking at. The passage predicts the coming of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Messiah will die, and subsequently the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed. At the end of the age, an evil ruler will arise who will persecute God's people, but his wicked activities will not continue, for the same Messiah who died will come again. And that, in a nutshell, is what those verses tell us without getting into any of the uh, interesting uh, embellishments that are added to them. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 
Paul writes this. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And I want to uh, finish with Revelation 22.20. It says, He, Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, this is Jesus, He says, Yes, I am coming soon. And John replies, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. And we too say, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it can be sometimes for us to even understand what some of this stuff means. But Lord, we know that our hope is secure in Christ. We know, Lord, that of all of the stuff, apart from uh, confusing details, we know the one firm thing for sure, that Jesus is coming and our salvation is secure in him. Lord, we ask that you would confirm these things in us, that you would fill us with your peace and your joy as we walk with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.